Good. Let's start our Dhamma talk as usual by first paying homage to the Buddha, then by taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and finally we'll take the eight precepts. And we'll do this in the Pali scriptural language. Namo tassa bhagavata arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavata arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhamma Saranam Gacchami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutyampi buddham saranam gachami Dutyampi dhammam saranam gachami Dutyampi sangam saranam gachami Dutyampi buddham saranam gachami Dutyampi dhammam saranam gachami Tatiampi Sangama Saranam Gachami Panati Pata Viramani Sekhabadam Samadhyami Adena Dana Viramani Sekhabadam Samadhyami Abramachariya Viramani Sekhabadam Samadhyami Musawada Viramani Sekhabadam Samadhyami Sura Miraya Majapamadatana Viramani Sekhabadam Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Viramani Sekhabadam Samadhyami Natcha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Viramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana 
Viramani Sekapatam Samadhyami Itame Silam Magga Fala Nyanasa Pachayo Hotu Abamadina Sampadita Carefully listening to today's this, uh, uh, reports by the yogis, as well as Satna yesterday's uh, uh, reports, and uh, coordinating with Venerasyani Dot Wimalanyani, the topic for our discourse Satna this evening is refining our practice skills and. In the course of Fatna, this Satna discourse, we shall take a closer look at the importance of immediacy in the mindful observation of predominant objects. We will also take a quick look at the importance of the observing mind rushing towards Satna, the most predominant object of observation. We then shall explore what it means to label, observe, and know as and when the seeing, the hearing process, the smelling process, the tasting process, the tactile process, and mental processes take place. And in exploring this, we shall take it. We shall we shall um, see how first an observation and knowing of the specific qualities gradually leads on to knowing the conditioned characteristics of formations, and then this leading on to the. Knowing of the universal characteristics of formations. Having explored all these certain aspects, we shall re emphasize the importance of the continuity of our mindfulness and then highlight the importance of the intensity of the mentation practice and uh, in that certain regards uh, keeping uh, certain obstacles to practice in uh, view and out of those in particular the tendency to 
proliferation, which then you know, will lead us to uh, uh, a few words about uh, mindfulness and uh, uh, wandering mind. Now, in the course of a day spent mindfully, there will be objects that occur with great speed, possibly in a quick succession, one after another, and uh, uh, under these circumstances, can our, if our mindful observation is as slow as a snail, will that work? Not really. And so what is certainly required is immediacy. What is required is immediacy in the awareness of an object of observation. And ideally, nothing should come between the presently arising object and you know, the noting and observing mind. The arising object and certainly the noting mind should not be separated in time. The observation of the presently arising object should happen at once without any delay. It should be instant as soon as certainly the object of observation arises. It should be noted, observed and known. Its nature known. If one's certainly labeling and certain observation is delayed, then the object will have already passed by the time our awareness turns to it. Objects of the past and the future can or cannot be known properly. What would you say? Cannot be known properly. Cannot be known correctly. And if the attention cannot remain with objects as they arise, then it is no longer the Pasna practice. And with that, we're no longer dwelling in reality. In the connection with uh, the importance of uh, the immediacy in our uh, labeling and observation of predominant object, in this connection it's also important to highlight the aspect of you know, the observing mind uh, that should be ideally should be rushing towards certainly the respective object of observation, and certainly this by you know, the commentator has been 
explained or given as Pakhandana. So the main satna then satna should be rushing towards, leaping towards, and satna then plunging into the respective object of observation. So as soon as an object arises, the mind has to rush forward towards and into the object of observation with great force, with courage, and without hesitation, without certain thinking, reflecting, analyzing, imagining, questioning, considering, speculating, or fantasizing. And thus, a quick and swift movement of the observing mind towards the object of observation will be needed. So ideally, our awareness should not be slack, should not be sluggish, casual, not lagging behind or late, not gazing. It should be without wandering mind, with no room for thoughts. The noting and observing should not be in a cool and hesitating manner, but instead it must be rushing in a systematic and orderly manner. So what does this uh, mean? Applied to the seeing process, the seeing of some visible uh, object, as soon as the seeing process takes place, our observing as soon as the visible object arises and the seeing process occurs we should be labeling this and yeah, the observing mind yeah, should be rushing yeah, towards uh, this uh, seeing process and we then carefully observe the seeing process as it occurs. And the focus of the attention is on whatever the predominant aspect comes to the foreground. So this could be the visible object itself, it certainly could be the impact on the eye or eye sensitivity, it could be the arising seeing consciousness or you know, the coming together of the visible uh, datum and certainly the uh, eye sensitivity and certainly seeing consciousness which then is known as seeing contact already explained yesterday and based on uh, seeing contact then um, a feeling will arise 
either being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And so there's much to be uh, observed there. Now, when the seeing process occurs, this sadhana will happen quite naturally. And will the seeing process wait for you until finally your mindfulness is there? Will it do you that favor? Yes, sister? No. And since the seeing process is a process that happens extremely quickly, and there's several cognitive fitness series involved, and there's much to be discovered there, our observation, our mindfulness has to be really quick. So right away, it needs to be with the object. Now, if that is the case, then we will come to know the true nature of the seeing process. And certainly with that, it is uh, um, unlikely that in the presence of a desirable object, visible object, that, uh, let's say, the mind gets suddenly carried away by a pleasant feeling. And based on a pleasant feeling, that suddenly then some liking, wanting, or desire arises. So in the case of an undesirable, visible uh, object, if we catch it early on, then we might be aware of the feeding tone that goes along with the experience. And this could be an unpleasant feeling. If we're mindful of that unpleasant feeling right away, then which unwholesome state might not arise? Pardon me? Aversion. Aversion, there you go, that's correct. And by rapidly applying mindfulness to the seeing process, the mind remains pure. But if our labeling observation and knowing of the seeing process does not occur as and when the seeing process occurs, then unwholesome states will infiltrate and certainly then uh, we will not certainly know the true nature of what is happening. And the same then also applies certainly to the process of hearing and in the course of a day we will be this hearing process will be occurring hundreds, if not thousands, of times. So there's plenty, there are plenty of occasions you know, to practice you know, mindfulness in regard to the hearing process. So the hearing occurs, and immediately our attention goes certainly towards the hearing process and that we label it, we carefully observe it, and we try to know its certain nature. 
if you know, the mind is the observing the mind is quick enough then wholesome states or then unwholesome states cannot arise with regard to the hearing process and all is well and good but if the mindfulness is lagging behind in regard to the hearing process then easily in the presence of let's say some sweet um, enticing sound this satna will be accompanied by a pleasant satna feeding and then uh, very quickly based on the pleasant feeding some desire uh, arises wanting to uh, hear more or wanting to hear this satna pleasant sweet certain sound wanting to hear more of it craving for it uh, grasping it now when it comes to the process of knowing some odor or scent fragrance it's the same approach as and when this uh, uh, smelling process takes place without uh, the slightest delay, our mindfulness should be there. And uh, we should uh, label it right away as sadness smelling and sadness then uh, carefully observing the smelling process. And either being aware of the smell itself or of the no suddenness sensitivity or the coming together of the two and the arising of the smelling consciousness or when those certain three occur or come together it means to know the contact or else to know the feeling to observe and know the feeling that arises due to and in regard to the smelling process should our mindfulness be up to the mark be very quick we will come to know its true nature and suddenly we will neither get attached to it nor reject it be aversive towards it nor will there be ignorance about suddenly the nature of that very smelling process But certainly should the mindfulness certainly be slow, lagging behind, then we're not going to know its true nature. The same approach also applies with regard to the process of knowing 
the taste, the flavor of uh, food or uh, some uh, liquid, some drink. And uh, there, uh, too, we want to be, um, our mindfulness has to be uh, really up to the mark as soon as and when this process of um, knowing the flavor of fatness and food occurs right then and there at that very moment our mindfulness should be there and we then label it as knowing the tit or or as tasting knowing the flavor of food and certainly then one to carefully observe and know the details of it what kind of taste is this is it a sour taste a bitter taste is it a sweet taste or a salty taste a spicy taste and um, and the like and um, what about the feeling tone that arises in connection with this very process again the presence or absence the timely presence or absence of mindfulness makes all the difference if our mindfulness is much delayed we will be eating food yes but we will not know its uh, taste its flavor its certain specific uh, uh, qualities and certainly when our mindful observation is delayed then in the case of uh, uh, well, delicious certain uh, taste um, and the presence of a pleasant feeling, we might get carried away by that certain pleasant feeling, and desire uh, uh, might certainly uh, arise in or will arise in the stream of certain uh, consciousness. When our mindfulness is certain, uh, the mind is certain quick and sharp, and the mindfulness is right. Uh, with the occurrence, with the process of knowing that or tasting some food, then unwholesomeness. We will know the nature of the taste of the experience and we will also ensure the purity of the mind. The same thing goes for tactile processes, and there are many of those. So mm, the same goes certainly for you know, the, let's say, the occurrence of a pricking sensation somewhere in you know, the body, followed by maybe an itch elsewhere, followed by it yet another, um, you know, let's say, small you know, jerk elsewhere. When bodily formations occur in a relatively quick succession then our mind 
has to be has to be dynamic it has to move quickly and our mindfulness should be with each uh, should be mm, mm, should be present as and when the respective sensation occurs and only then will we come to know the true nature of the respective sensation we will come to know a prick as a prick and that maybe as an intense prick or as a mild prick or that in terms of the fee its feeding tone whether it is accompanied by a pleasant feeding tone or an unpleasant one or a neutral one whatever in the absence of timely a, a timely mindful observation we will not come to know the nature of the respective physical formations the same thing then goes for mental processes and uh, the mind as some of you might uh, know already from your own practice the mind is what quicker than the bodily formations or slower quicker there you go and so the mind is typically operating at a far greater speed than near the occurrence of physical formations and many of you will be aware how quickly the mind can shift from one state from one mental state to another now if such a sudden shift in mental state occurs and our mindful observation is not up to the mark and much delayed how can we be aware of this occurring shift and it could be that earlier on the mind was on the wholesome side and all of a sudden it's on the unwholesome side and we're not even aware of it and suddenly we're buying into it and get carried away by it what do you prefer a mind overwhelmed by unwholesome mental states or do you prefer a mind uh, uh, accompanied by wholesome states Paris? wholesome states so as soon as the next predominant or as soon as a predominant mental object certainly comes up or mental state comes up becomes predominant immediately we want to turn our attention to it and suddenly recognize it label it observe it carefully and suddenly know its nature so what kind of mental state is this and suddenly then what's do we are we aware of the very very arising of that uh, particular uh, mental state and then 
are we aware of the feeling tone that goes along with it? Or are we at least aware of the perception of the respective mental state, etc.? Now, it should be, or it should have become clear or obvious certainly by now that in the in regard to you know, the mindful observation of the various sensadnador processes, namely the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental processes, we our observing mind does need to be sharp and quick. Sharp and quick and needs and immediacy and rushing towards Satna, the respective object, will be needed. Now, when this kind of a sharp and immediate mindful observation of predominant objects is present, then obviously knowledge, understanding will arise about the nature of the respective object. And this will typically lead a beginning retreat to understanding in a very direct manner, first of all, the specific characteristics of objects. So the specific characteristics in terms of the rising movement of the abdomen, in terms of the falling movement of the abdomen, in terms of, let's say, some pain, and so on. Now, specific characteristics in, uh, in regard to the rising movement of the abdomen could be what? Pressure, yes, expansion, stiffness, tension, tightness, hardness. And what could be a specific characteristic in regard certainly to the falling movement of the abdomen? Releasing. Releasing. Release of uh, release of tension, stiffness, tightness, uh, contraction, relaxation, etc. And uh, in the case of the pain, knowing its certain specific characteristic would mean knowing that this is not just generally a pain, but uh, knowing this, let's say, as a piercing pain. And a piercing piercing, throbbing pain. With this, uh, we then know already a few more specific qualities in regard to that pain. Now, retreatants will have to observe and know the specific qualities of the various objects for some time until they really get well acquainted with this great um, 
mm, range of physical and mental you know, formations. And only when that has been accomplished does the practice move on and certain retreatants will then typically notice that objects have or, or that the beginning, the arising, the genesis of an object is predominant. Its occurrence, the middle portion, is predominant and distinct and certainly also its uh, ending uh, is certainly predominant. With this, the emphasis is less on, or to a lesser extent, on the specific qualities of an object, but more on the very fact that each object has a beginning, has a middle, has an uh, ending. And this we know as certainly the um, condition characteristic of uh, formations Sankata Lakana in the Pali scriptural language. Knowing the uh, specific characteristic of characteristics of objects uh, in Pali is known as Sambhava Lakana. Now, with a further mindful investigation of predominant certain objects as they naturally arise in our sitting practice, walking practice, and during the general activities, our practice will, our meditation will mature, and with this another aspect will come to the foreground, namely, while observing an object like a pain, one might notice that what appeared to be a solid, unchanging pain at first, and now is being experienced as an ever-changing pain. That changes in terms of its intensity, in terms of its quality, in terms of its certain location, and uh, then uh, uh, maybe also in other uh, ways. And the same uh, might be experienced with regard uh, to uh, many other uh, objects. And so with this certain uh, then, the aspect of the transitory nature of formations comes to the foreground. And retreatants realize, oh, this is valid, not only with regard to one single object, but one sees the same transitory nature also with regard to many other objects, all other uh, conditioned formations. And then there's more you know, to be explored, and I you know, will leave it up to you, you know, to you know, find out for yourselves in your own you know, meditation practice. So this last aspect uh, technically is known as certain knowing the universal characteristics of certain formations in the Pali scripture language given as Samanya Lakana.
No. The next aspect that I would like to highlight certainly this evening is that of the continuity of our mindfulness. Now, Marcia has already given a talk on the many aspects of mindfulness and the importance of the continuity of it cannot be overemphasized. It is just a vital, it's vital for a proper development in our practice. Now, continuity of mindfulness means that one moment of mindfulness is connected to the next moment of mindfulness, to the next moment of mindfulness. They're closely linked one to the next. With the ending of one moment of mindfulness, the next moment follows right away. So you have a succession of one moment of mindfulness after another. The problem is that it's actually not that easy to establish perfect continuity of mindfulness. And typically what happens is that, especially at the beginning of a retreat, that one's mindfulness still contains plenty of lapses. So lapses, moments or periods of absent-mindedness. And this will have consequences or not? Fred, would you say yes, no? Absolutely. Would you have an example for this? What's that? Yeah. Such as? Such as. Well, I'm living it right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're living it right now. <laughs> okay. So then with that, we have a superb example. <laughs> There are several reasons why this continuity of mindfulness is so important. The first one is that a continuity of mindfulness ensures that over a longer period of time that the resulting mindfulness will be rather strong. So one moment of mindfulness after another will lead to an, a, a, a very strong uh, total mindfulness or accumulated mindfulness, if you like to. 
Now, another aspect, relevant aspect, in regard to the continuity of our mindfulness is that in the presence of continuous mindfulness, the mind will be protected. It will be protected, it will be guarded against what? Unmindfulness. Unmindfulness. It will be distractions, unwholesome mindfulness. The arising of the attack by unwholesome mental states. And when mindfulness is present in a continuous manner, then the mind is said to be protected. And just like a doorkeeper at a hotel, a big five-star hotel, keeps gangsters out, so too our mindfulness, continuous mindfulness, our doorkeeper of mindfulness, guardian, will keep unwanted, unwholesome mental states out. And the Atasalini explains this even further, namely, at that point, mindfulness has certainly this um, opportunity to choose, or with mindfulness, we can choose mm, between what is useful and what is useless. So the unwholesome mental states are useless. And they are not going to be to our benefit. And hence it's good to keep them out. However, when it comes to wholesome states, yes, these are useful, these are uh, beneficial, and they and, and we will allow them uh, uh, entry. Now, this particular aspect mentioned in the Atasalini, namely that of keeping what is beneficial, what is holds, what is useful, and rejecting what is useless and not beneficial, is based on an exchange between King Melinda and Satna Elder uh, Nagasena. Uh, and Satna in regard Satna to uh, qualities of mindfulness. Now, when our mindfulness is really continuous from micro-moment to micro-moment, and this not only for a minute or two, but ideally for many hours, like let's say three, four hours uh, non-stop, then what do you think? Will such a retreat have 
slow progress in the practice or quick progress in the practice quick progress there you go and we have unlimited time here and because we don't have unlimited time during this retreat there is an end a clear definite end date to this retreat we might want to make good use of our time and and we want to ensure that our practice unfolds as steadily and continuously as possible as quickly as possible now when our mindfulness with regard to whatever predominant object suddenly comes along is pretty continuous then this means in terms of concentration that the mind will be sticking to an object being closely connected to a predominant object over longer and longer periods of time and with this the mind quite naturally becomes concentrated collected so in other words an unintermittent mindfulness a continuous certain mindfulness contributes to the strengthening of concentration now the Abhidhamma tells us that mindfulness, mindfulness itself is a wholesome uh, mental state, a beautiful uh, mental factor, and it arises together with 18 other beautiful mental factors. Now, the presence or absence of mindfulness then uh, has huge implications here. When mindfulness is present in the stream of consciousness, then this will be accompanied by an 18 wholesome, beautiful mental factors such as you know, tranquility of fertility. the mental body and, uh, and consciousness and uh, uh, lightness of uh, the mental body lahuta of the mental body and certain uh, consciousness and so on and so forth equanimity is there etc so obviously we prefer the presence of beautiful mental states um, over the unwholesome ones. Now, when our mindfulness is truly continuous from moment to moment while we are engaged in the mindful contemplation of the body, kaya nupasana satipatthana, of fatna feelings, vedna nupasana satipatthana, of the mind, Chitta Nupasana Santipatana and of phenomena or Dhammas, Dhamma Nupasana Santipatana, then ultimately this will lead us where? Nowhere? 
It will lead us where? Nibbana. There you go. It will lead us into the realization of the Dhamma. And that's what we're here for. Now, There are always ways and means of improving, of enhancing our, or refining our practice skills. And one area that deserves particular attention is certainly that of ensuring the intensity of our practice. Now, the intensity of our practice, the Venerabhasi Sayadaw uh, highlighted certainly quite a bit and certainly explaining that you know, when the intensity is on and off for five minutes we give our best and then you know, we uh, go on a holiday for half an hour and then again five minutes of continuous mindfulness etc well you know, this certain type of, a, of an approach is not going to lead very far Among the things that weaken the intensity of our practice, we have things like engaging in unrelated activities. Unrelated activities such as reading, such as extensive writing and really seriously becoming a serious problem these days are the cell phones. So typically most every yogi or everyone um, brings a cell phone uh, along on a retreat. I think probably there will be a majority of those who brought their cell phone along. Now, bringing one's cell phone along has certain, certain uh, may have certain consequences, namely. Uh, there, there, there might be a craving, a craving for what? To look at it. To look at it. And not just to look at it. But maybe to put it into operation and then hit a couple of its buttons and numbers and so on. And so in no time we find ourselves, even though we are on an intensive, supposed to be on an intensive retreat, we find ourselves engaging with the world outside. Now. Does that help 
the development of our practice in any way, super conducive, yes, the more the better. No. To be very clear about this, this is, this can be detrimental to one's own meditation practice. We've had in Lumbini one retreatant after several weeks of intensive practice who then, for some reason, decided you know, to dig out his cell phone and certainly he had a Nepali you know, a SIM card in it and certainly so he decided to switch on his cell phone and he then took things a step further and he decided to call his family. He decided to call his wife. <laughs> and it so happened, his wife did not respond. Now, probably this, sent, uh, this man, uh, his heart uh, in the Lord, and uh, some shock waves. Now, being an intelligent man, he said, well, I have not just a wife, I also have a son, let me call my son. And so he called his son. He wouldn't resist certain calling, so he called his certain son and asked, well, how are you, how are things going at home? And he finds out that his wife had just spent the weekend with her new boyfriend. <laughs> And this had major <laughs> consequences for this particular yogi. And so from that point onwards, he spent most of his time thinking about how he was going to handle the situation. And so, so he told me in the, uh, the following interview, and the interview, the following interview, he came and said, I'm going to divorce my wife. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and he stayed for another two weeks or so and eventually went back and, uh, well, they separated. Now, that's... Uh, yeah, just as a realness, a real life fitness story, what might happen you know, when uh, one uses, you know, when, certain, uh, when one brings a cell phone on retreat and goes a step further you know, by even using it. No, but it does not end there. Talking on retreat might be another. No, a way of draining our energy, of fatna draining our uh, uh, concentration, hard uh, um, or achieved through hard fatna work. Socializing it could be seen as, an, or will definitely be yet another way of uh, um, weakening the intensity of our practice. Now, particularly relevant to this beautiful location here, in the midst of nature, 
and so inviting are what? The nature trails, the hiking trails, and uh, a retreat and getting bored with having to sit in meditation uh, and having to be mindful during walking meditation might decide to go off on a hike as a pastime. Now, this is what? A great idea or not? Would you say so? Would you subscribe to this? No, this is not a good idea. Now, even though the temptation is there, if we are truly serious, truly committed to the work that we're doing here, we would not even consider going on a hike and signing up for a long hike or a short, shorter walk. Now, the Anguchanikaya, in, in its book of the Sixes, Discourse number 14, contains a discourse yeah, that is entitled in English, A Good Death. And uh, it is a discourse that describes an exchange between Elder Sariputta, one of the Buddha's uh, two chief disciples, and a group of merchants. And then he gives certain these certain uh, merchants or describes to these certain merchants two cases, namely merchants that work, talk, sleep, seek company, companionship and prolific conceptualization being one case and merchants who uh, stay away, who uh, don't get involved in unnecessary work, in talk, in sleep, in company, in companionship and no prolific uh, conceptualization. And applied to our situation here, there are certain activities that hinder the spiritual progress, namely just those getting, being on retreat and certainly then uh, getting busy with unnecessary you know, activities, let's say sweeping the grounds here, or uh, just doing unnecessary uh, work. Then spending one's time talking to you know, fellow retreatants, thereby disrupting other yogis' practice as well as one's own practice, excessive sleep, like sleeping eight to ten hours, when in fact uh, we might uh, uh, quite well get by on four to six hours a night. And then, even though the Buddha said that the Dhamma, this Dhamma 
is for one who resorts to solitude, yet we take delight in company, Sanganika in the Pali scripture language. And uh, even though we are on retreat, we seek, or there's bonding, there's, we're seeking companionship, association, closeness. And worst of all, we get lost in uh, prolific conceptualization. So one thought leading to the next, leading to yet another one, to yet another idea, and then that idea gets uh, elaborated on and there's no ending to it. Now, the discourse ends with the following, the fool who engages in and finds delight in prolific conceptualization is far removed from Nibbana, the incomparable freedom from bondage. And he or she who gives up prolific conceptualization and delights in the path to non-conceptualization attains to Nibbana the incomparable freedom from bondage. Now, surely you will have experienced times in your meditation practice, in particular you know, the sitting practice, when you sit there and you're totally lost in uh, thinking, thinking about Satna or getting carried away with a particular idea or maybe some new invention or uh, reliving uh, some uh, situation from the past or dwelling in uh, memories or you know, being lost in imaginary conversations and uh, the like. Or conceptualizing about uh, the Dhamma, um, uh, evaluating one's own experiences and then trying to understand where one's practice is at, um, applying technical Buddhist terms to what is happening. Now, this prolific conceptualization, if it is going unchecked for a long period of time, will surely undermine the intensity of our practice. And we definitely want to be mindful of it right away. As soon as it occurs, we want to label it, we want to observe it, we want to know its nature. And then, having known its nature, we want to let go of it. Now, in connection with or, or involved in prolific conceptualization is thinking. Now, the thinking 
plays a really important part, especially in highly industrialized countries where at certain school, at college, at certain university, people are trained to think in a logical manner, to think out problems, to find solutions through thinking. Now, thinking clearly has its place and has its value. I'm not contesting this. However, in our mindfulness practice, we want to do what? Is it truly we want to not think? First of all, we want to recognize the thinking when it's happening. That's it. We want to recognize it. We want to label it. We want to take it as an object. We want to label it, observe it in an objective manner, and come to know its nature. And after having carefully labeled, observed, and certainly known thinking many times, and after having fully understood the ultimate nature of thinking, and certainly oftentimes useless nature of thinking, then it then comes to the point to immediately dismiss it. Now, when we look at the phenomenology involved in thinking, and we look at certain of the different kinds of you know, thinking that uh, might uh, one might experience, well, mm, you know, there's a great variety. There, in terms of time, there is thinking with regard to the future, so planning with regard to the past, memories, or thinking in regard to what happens, what currently unfolds, or when doubting thoughts occur, or when fearful thoughts occur, or angry thoughts occur, then we see that the thinking is colored by what? By what? By feelings? By mind states, there you go. By, primarily by mind states to some extent, certain feelings. And so, simply by saying thinking angry thoughts, what becomes ob should become obvious is that the thinking is colored by the mind state of anger. Or, when we experience a lot of doubting thoughts, a lot of questions with regard to the practice, with regard to one's own capacity to do the practice, 
and we mindfully observe this, sooner or later we will recognize, oh, the mental state of doubt is at work. Or, when fearful of thoughts are overwhelming the mind, well, the underlying mental state is again anger and fear being a sinking type of anger, a passive type of anger, if you like to. Or when sensuous thoughts are occurring, then it becomes obvious that certain of these thoughts are colored by the mind state of sense desire or a simple a simply desire. Now since various mind states in are involved and our task is to be mindful of whatever predominant object arises, what do we need to do? Be aware of our thinking and be, be aware of those and label them, label these mind states as, um, well, as certainly, let's say, in line with Chitta Nupasana Satipatthana, namely as a mind, or knowing, sorry, knowing mind as associated with or afflicted by the sense desire as a mind that is afflicted by the sense desire and to know a mind that is afflicted by anger as being afflicted by uh, anger etc and so we apply that mindfulness to what is happening and in this way we then gradually come to know the true nature of the thinking and what underlies the thinking, what colors our thinking. And we might make discoveries such as being absent-minded of certain sensuous of thoughts, and these sensuous of thoughts keep uh, happening again and again. This then leads certainly to or contributes to the forming of a certain tendency towards uh, thinking sensuous thoughts. And the same thing would certainly go for you know, thinking angry thoughts and certain the like. Now, there is so much more to be said about certain thinking, and we're running out of time, so this will need to be continued at some other point. And so allow me to conclude by wishing may you May you ensure that your mindfulness fulfills this quality of 
immediacy of rushing towards uh, you know, whatever predominant object comes along, and uh, may you be um, fully mindful as and when the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental processes are taking place. May you further ensure the continuity of your mindfulness and work towards ever greater intensity of your practice and in this regard also be mindful of the thinking itself and making sure that you don't become a victim of or a slave to your own thinking and thus may your practice benefit from this may you learn these additional skills practice certain skills and certainly may mindfulness get ever stronger concentration become ever ever more focused and then may intuitive wisdom unfold by leaps in leaps and bones and uh, culminate in uh, the realization of the peace of Nibbana, hopefully during this very retreat here at the Columbine Inn of the Atal Ski Valley. And this is it for the discourse.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.